This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 10, The Fourth Function of Leadership, Comforting Spirit When Things Fall Apart. All good things come to an end. This is true of boxes of candy as well as outstanding human systems. To restate the fourth immutable principle, when it is over, it is over. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that all systems tend toward entropy, which is a concise way of letting us know that eventually the energy that drives the system becomes so regularized and evenly distributed across the system that it is no longer clearly in evidence. Strange as it may seem, the first law of thermodynamics, which asserts that energy is neither created nor destroyed, is not contravened. For all appearances to the contrary, the energy is still there. It is just homogenized into sameness. There is no difference that makes a difference. The same may be said about human systems. It is not that the originating spirit has disappeared. It is only locked up in the organizational structure. What began as a flash of spirit manifest in vision, focused through a collective tale, and made real and concrete in structure with its own time and space, eventually becomes boring. It is paradoxical to the extreme, but the more perfectly an organization runs, the closer it is to its end. As structure is built and management refines and operates that structure, the level of efficiency and effectiveness, not to mention profitability, goes up. The driving spirit that energizes an organization is channeled ever more narrowly into the task at hand. Nothing is wasted, nothing is spun off, and everything is focused on the bottom line, however that might be defined. The good news is that the machine works well. The bad news is that it is boring. OCF was a superbly managed organization. It dominated the market it had created with the invention of its major product. It was profitable to a fault which made it a tasty takeover target, and it seemed to many that the company would simply last forever. But when I interviewed a number of executives in those halcyon days before Wix, I discovered a curious and constant refrain in the stories they told. On the one hand, they were quick to acknowledge the positive. Their compensation was, ad was adequate, training and development programs were constantly available, and a well-defined and smoothly functioning reward system is was in place. But... Where was the but? Who could ask for anything more? What possibly could be missing from this picture of general perfection? The answer usually came in words like, but, you know, we haven't had any fun in 10 years. Somehow the excitement and adrenaline surges of the old days had disappeared. The good news was that the system worked and worked exceedingly well. The bad news was it was dull. The pathways for spirit in that place had been so carefully made out and maintained not to mention guarded, that there was no sense of adventure. Having fun on the job has not, until recently, been understood as an essential working condition. But to tell the truth, when the fun and excitement stop and boredom sets in, a number of other things of other definitely less desirable effects are almost certainly in the wings. Boredom inevitably produces sloppiness and troublemakers, a fact well known to parents and nursery school teachers. Bored employees tend to overlook the details, which translates directly into a decline of quality and an increase in customer dissatisfaction. 
Boredom also gives birth to troublemakers, for the spirit is still there. It is just feeling claustrophobic. Trouble, of course, can come in many packages. At best, it will emerge as harmless pranks, done just to make the time go faster. At worst, trouble comes in packages labeled office bickering, backbiting, nasty rumors, and worse. Boredom also manifests itself in the decline in creativity. I do not know it to be a fact, but the story at OCF was that they hadn't had a truly new product in 10 years, during a time when they maintained an enormous research facility on a 200-acre campus with 1,200 employees. OCF, to its credit, was by no means blind to these disturbing symptoms. Their response, very much in line with general corporate practice, was an attempt to fix the system. The fix went in two directions. On the one hand, there was a heavy investment in quality control, checkers to check the checkers, guided by a super checker. On the other hand, programs were introduced to raise creativity, most particularly an outstanding import from Sweden created by the Foresight Group and known as the School for Entrepreneurs. The school represented an honest attempt to juice up the old system with a good shot of entrepreneurial zeal. The Wix takeover intervened before all these fixes could be fully played out, but had Wix not come onto the scene, I strongly suspect that the experience at OCF would have paralleled that of all organiz other organizations I know under similar circumstances. The proposed system fixes would not have worked. Indeed, they would have been counterproductive. The problem was not that the system wasn't working, but precisely the opposite. The system was doing exactly what it was designed to do, channel spirit. In doing its job, it was also reaching its intended goals, which were efficiency, effectiveness, and profitability. There were, unfortunately, some toxic byproducts. Under the circumstances, the proposed fixes really would not have done much good. The increase in quality control would only have further tightened the system and increased the constraints on available spirit. In practical terms, the results would appear as reduced flexibility and increased costs, not exactly what was needed. As for the School of Entrepreneurs, the intent was laudable, but the outcome could have been disastrous, for as the program released entrepreneurial zeal, even as the system moved toward greater control, something would have to give. It is possible that the rising young entrepreneurs really would have made a difference, in which case the system would have triumphed and it would be, have been back to business as usual. Neither effort could neither effort could have altered the fact that when it is over, it is over. The advent of Wix, with his hostile takeover attempt, shortened the process and may well have saved OCF, but it was certainly not the OCF that used to be. In the days and months following the tender offer, there is a great deal of conversation about the new OCF. Admittedly, there was not a high level of agreement about what the new OCF could be but I think it was apparent to all that the old OCF had gone. Also apparent was an outbreak of spirit. Although the time immediately surrounding the takeover attempt was painful indeed, resulting in enormous disruption in the lives of many people, it surely was not boring. Candid conversations often yielded statements like, it surely has been rough, but to tell the truth, I haven't had this much fun in years. Talk about challenge and performance. It was exciting to know that our corporate life was on the line, which meant that we, we all had to make a difference. Even those who left seemed to share some of the excitement, as I found out indirectly from a message left on my answering machine by the son of a former executive. 
This young man told me that his father was a terminated OCF executive. After 30 years with the company, the shock of termination was no small thing. But when the anger and pain cleared, his father discovered a remarkable thing. He had been imprisoned by a system that had taken all his time, his energy, and talent. When it all broke down, he climbed on a plane to go visit his son. They talked seriously for the first time in 20 years. Why wait for Wix? If it is true that there is a certain naturalness of ending, and that inevitably there will come a time when a system not only fulfilled, but also exhausted this potential, why is it that we sit around until the inevitable is obvious? Why indeed? There are probably a million ways to candy coat the answer, but none of them will avoid the final conclusion. We wait because of death. We don't like it. The extremity of this statement is not meant for shock value, but rather to bring the discussion quickly to where it needs to be. Using the word death may appear to be an overstatement, but I seriously believe it is what we experience when our systems reach their end. In a plant closing or a major downsizing, one has only to visit briefly with those walking out the door, as well as with those who remain, to understand the depth of the situation. If it is not depth, it is surely the next thing to it. Good company folks who spend all of their working lives going to the same place, doing the same thing, hoping the common hope and expecting the common reward, are finished. For better or for worse, we define ourselves by what we do. Small children understand this immediately when with pride or confusion they say, my daddy or mommy does X, Y, Z. At a cocktail party or in a bar, the answer to the question, who are you, is as likely to be your title or profession as your name. And when that definition no longer applies, life as we once knew it isn't anymore. Of course, there are those for whom a job isn't just a job, and they will walk out the door with no further thought. But such people are not, nor will they ever be, the heart and soul of an organization. They just fill a slot, anchor a desk, and pass the time. We say of them that their heart is not in it, which means that there is no danger of their losing heart when it is all over. Doubtless, there is a place for such people, but should they assume a majority position, the organization is in deep trouble. Without heart, there is no commitment, loyalty, and all the other good things that make an organization fly. But with heart, commitment, and loyalty comes attachment. When attachment breaks, pain results. You may not want to call it death, it may choose another word, but experience has taught me that the human reaction is the same, no matter what the name when it is over, it is over, and that hurts. Speaking of a system ending as dying not only fits the circumstances, but also brings us to a point where we can talk honestly about the factors involved in our inability to face the situation early on and proactively. The issue is not a lack of knowledge, for we have all known since childhood that what goes up must come down, that what begins will end, and that sometimes we will each cease. However, having the knowledge and being able to deal with it are two separate things. Indeed, we in the West expend extraordinary effort distancing ourselves as far as possible from the reality of death. Until fairly recently, even talking about dying was considered poor form. The cosmetic industry makes a fortune helping us all to pretend that those early indicators of approaching demise are not there. The funeral business seems to be about masking the reality of dying so that the corpse looks more alive than the living. Our language continues the charade, for few, if any, ever die. They pass on, fall asleep, go to the other side, or take a trip. Nobody dies. 
Corporate executives are no less averse to the downside. Everything must be beginning and new, with no thought of ending or passing from the scene. Annual reports are replete with success stories and new ventures, but the ones that have ended warrant only a footnote, if they are mentioned at all. Consultants and trainers are equally guilty, offering magic bullets for the attainment of power, read excellence, but nary a word about what to do when it falls apart. This may be short-sighted, but it is quite understandable, for who would pay to be told that all good things come to an end? It is surely better to remain in ignorance, or even pretended ignorance. In this case, ignorance is not bliss, and certainly not when the inevitable becomes reality. But it is no wonder that the end of a system, organization, or corporation always seems to come as a surprise, with absolutely no advanced preparation. Leadership and making a good ending. The Japanese have a curious concept that they call a good death. To Western ears, this is a complete oxymoronic contradiction. How could death possibly be good? Leaving aside the details for the moment, the mere existence of the phrase points out that there are some different ways of looking at death and ending. Both of these realities may be viewed as the total cessation of everything, in which our typical way of dealing with them makes a great deal of sense. If you can't do anything about something, and it doesn't make any difference anyhow, best to put it as far out of your mind as possible and get on with business for the moment. Should it turn out, however, that ending is simultaneously the fulfillment and the fracturing of finite forms, in this case, human systems, be they corporations or something else, then avoiding the end is avoiding the meaning and purpose for which something was created. In other words, evading death usually results in avoiding life. Indeed, individuals and organizations who drink it all down to the dregs are precisely the ones who live life in full measure. There is yet another thought hidden in the idea of a good death. Endings are the necessary precursors to new beginnings. One simply cannot get on with whatever is coming next until the present passes. This thought suggests that in avoiding the fact of ending in death, one misses out not only on the fulfillment of present reality, but also on the opening of the next act. These hidden thoughts suggest some added dimensions to leadership. We have previously seen the critical role that leadership plays in creating and maintaining the open space in which spirit appears, first in vision, then in collective storytelling, and in the last chapter, when structure is grown. We now face the ultimate open space, when everything falls away, and leadership must be there at the end. When a human system, particularly a business or part of a business, shows the unmistakable signs of ending, the sequence of behavior at the top is unfortunately fairly predictable and looks something like this. To ignore it, perhaps it will go away. To deny it, perhaps it isn't so. To find somebody else to blame, so at least you do not get tagged with the failure. Or to bail out as quickly as possible with the largest parachute available. Given the current infatuation with success, coupled with an inability to deal with death, our own or that of others, this behavior not only makes sense, but it also is the only behavior possible. The cost, however, is enormous. In individual human terms, such behavior means that at precisely the moment when spirit needs to be supported and cared for, those who should assume that responsibility disappear. The pain of ending is real, and the despair engendered is inescapable. But if that pain and despair are not to last forever, someone, or several someones, must assume the mantle of leadership, to stand in the middle, just to be there and listen. Not a pleasant task, but I think it comes with the territory. 
There are additional organizational costs chargeable to the present behavior of many who call themselves leaders. If the time of ending is also the time of fulfillment, what better learning opportunity could possibly present itself to reflect on all that has been done as a basis for doing it better or differently? When business ceases, there is time to see with a clarity unavailable previously. Closing one's eyes or bailing out at a time of learning is exceedingly wasteful. Obviously, this is not a task for the faint-hearted, but nobody ever said that leadership was going to be easy. Endings and New Beginnings There was a time, of course, when it seemed that our organizations would go on forever. Incremental changes might come and go, but the expectation was our corporation forever. Of course, there were always those moments when really big changes came along, but they seemed few and far between and could largely be handled by that convenient mechanism I call the generational flush. Once every 20 years or so, all the old guys retired, died, or were otherwise pushed aside. At that time, new blood could come in, along with new ideas and approaches. This was known as progress by funerals, and in the interim, there was not much to do but wait your turn. We no longer had the luxury to wait for the generational flush. Whole businesses, indeed, whole, even industries, come and go within a few years. Maintaining the competitive edge, to say nothing of simple existence, requires that we do in a decade what many of us before never had to negotiate in a lifetime. And we can only believe that the pace we experience will increase. If it is not true that all endings create the open space, space within which new beginnings can occur, we better make it so, or throw in the towel right now. Converting endings to new beginnings obviously requires more than wishing it were so. For when the end comes, spirit sags, slips away, and sometimes just plain goes over the hill. New beginnings require a new spirit, or at least getting the old spirit back together, which poses the interesting question, how do you raise spirit? Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.